We all have tales we tell ourselves, of which we are the hero. But what if Jesus became the subject? How would that change the way our stories unfolded? If the savior of the world was our focus, every tale we told had Jesus as the main character, and every plot twist was part of a cosmic narrative, a narrative that guided our lives and dictated our decisions. From nativity to humanity, his story led from king to cross, a heroic journey from a humble servant to a holy sacrifice, calling and leading, healing and revealing. And now he is our guide, through every act and scene, not as a figure of the past, but present through to our future. Leading us through every peak and valley, and holding our hand through every cliffhanger. All we must do is let him take the lead and reign as king in the center of our story. It is so good to have you here on an absolutely incredibly beautiful day. There's so many other places you could be right now, but I'm grateful that you chose to be with the people of God, to lift up the name of Jesus and to look into his word. And I just pray that you will be blessed because I good to have you here in Bellingham. Those of you in Skagit, thanks for joining us. I'm sure it's a beautiful day down there too. Watch out for all the traffic with the tulips and the daffodils and all that. That's part of your county. And Boca Raton, glad that you're with us at the Trinity Church of God. And if you're watching online, uh, thanks for joining with us. Before we get into this week's sermon, I just want to take a moment to talk about an event that happened this week, uh, something I've never experienced in my years here at Cornwall. As you know, about every other year I take a trip to Israel, and we've been talking about this next trip that's going to Israel and Egypt in February and March of 2020. And there had actually been quite a bit of interest, uh, people talking about that. So Wednesday night, we had an information meeting about that, and the trip um, filled up immediately, within 15 minutes, completely filled up with uh, tons of people on the waiting list. And I'm telling you, it was a heavy, heavy moment for me when my assistant came over and said, Bob, we're going to fill, fill up spots here. And I said, show me in the line where, where we're done. And then to see this line of people who I've been talking, some of them I've been talking to for over a year. You've got to come to this trip. You've got to be at the meeting, bring your check. They've done everything I've told them to do. And I have to say, I'm sorry, the trip is full. And my heart was so heavy uh, on Wednesday night. And I went home and I told Doreen, I, I should be ecstatic that the trip is full, but I can't be excited because of all these people that wanted to, to go on this. And, and it was just, uh, finally I said, we just can't talk about this anymore because I was just such this burden. And the disappointment in, in some of your faces. So I was talking to my wife about that, and we prayed, talked with my assistant, some of our pastors and elders. And just want to let you know that because of the amount of interest in that, we are putting together a sister trip for the same year. That there will be an identical trip, identical itinerary in the fall of 2020. Um, because that trip in February filled up so quickly. We're still putting it together. The dates aren't locked in. The price isn't locked in. Uh, for those of you who are on the waiting list who missed out on that, so I wanted to let you know that, that there will be another trip uh, in the fall of 2020. And in addition to that, four months after that, because some of you expressed interest in a shorter, less expensive trip, we'll be doing in the February of 2021 an Israel-only trip. Um, so where normally we do a trip every two years, we're going to do three trips in 13 months. 
Uh, and so, yeah, so we're pretty excited about that. Anyway, a couple things on that. One, we are still putting this together, so don't, uh, we don't have the dates yet, we don't have the prices yet. Don't inundate my assistant with calls and emails and all that. We'll give, I'll give you more information as I get that, but I wanted to let you know that it makes my heart a little bit lighter and uh, excited. I, I love these trips. Anyway, I want to let you know that. Let's get to the real subject, Jesus. How about that? That's what we're here about. It's all about Jesus is the subject. And this is week 11 in our series as we've been working through the book of Mark. We've got three more weeks after this as it culminates on Resurrection Sunday with Easter in a few weeks. And I just want to say real quickly, thank you so much, Pastor Brian, for taking us through the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 9, and Pastor Kip for taking us partway through chapter 10 with the rich young ruler. So grateful for these guys that are willing uh, to give me a, uh, an early winter break. And uh, it was just a wonderful time as they've walked us through this. If you've been in the book of Mark, as we've been talking about this for a couple, two and a half months now, the book of Mark is the, the first gospel that was written. It's the shortest gospel. There's 16 chapters. And what's interesting about this book that Mark records, uh, probably the experiences of Peter that he's dictating for him, he spends 10 chapters talking about the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. But then something happens about halfway through chapter 10. Suddenly he just slows down. Because in the last six and a half chapters of the book, he doesn't cover three years, he covers eight days. He just slows down and says, this final week of Jesus' life, this last chapter is so important, I wanna slow down because there's a lot that we're gonna look at. A lot of other stuff he just sped right over. Three years, 10, 10 chapters, now six and a half chapters for eight days. And that's where we're gonna pick up today. We're gonna be in the middle of, of chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 32. Uh, this is the last week of Jesus' life. What we're going to look at today probably happened on the morning of what we refer to as Palm Sunday. The Palm Parade probably happened later in the afternoon or even in the evening. Uh, this is at that point. It's Passover week. And um, again, if you've been following along or reading along, Jesus has been spending a lot of time in the north, up around Galilee, Capernaum, and those kind of things. Now the Bible says he comes down and goes into Judea across the Jordan. Usually, the primary route that that was was down along the Jordan River and across the Jordan River, down by the Dead Sea where Jericho is. And then he's in Jericho, and he's on his way up uh, to Jerusalem. A lot of things are happening here, and you think about this. Jesus has, he knows he has one more week with his disciples. If you knew you had one more week with these guys, you would probably say, what are the things that are highest priority? What do I need to get really ingrained in their thinking? What do I need to cover in this last week? This is my last chance with them. And what we're going to look at today, I think, is one of those moments where Jesus says, I need this to get locked into their thinking. So because he talks to them about their worth, he talks to them about their value, he talks about importance, he talks about their identity, about their greatness, and how they can grow in that. And it's not just for them, I think it's for us as well. So you ready to get into this? Yes. All right. Mark chapter 10, verse 32, it says, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. Now for some of you who like uh, interesting little details, if they had taken that route down along the Jordan and across uh, into Jericho, um, which is highly, highly likely what they did that, like very, very probable. And if you're familiar at all or you've ever looked at the maps in the back of your, of your Bible, you may notice that Jericho is actually north of Jerusalem. But it says they're going up to Jerusalem. And if you're taking the compass rose idea, most of the time when we head south, we talk about going down. Like we would say, I'm going down to Seattle. Most of us don't say, I'm going up to Seattle. If we do, we just think you're uneducated. So he says here, I'm, we're going up to Jerusalem. Why would they say that if it's actually going south? 
Well, Jericho is at 850 feet below sea level. It's the lowest inhabited city on the planet. It's actually the second oldest uh, um, continuously inhabited city on the planet. It's 850 feet below sea level, and Jerusalem is 24, 2,500 feet above sea level. So when he says we're going up to Jerusalem, they are literally going up to Jerusalem. It's an elevation. You know, some of you remember that song, um, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. I'm not, anyone remember that one? Beautiful for situation. The scripture actually says beautiful in elevation. You know, the city of our great king. Tis Mount Zion on the side of the north. Okay, we're not going to sing that chorus. But it's up, they're going up. And it says that Jesus is leading the way, which makes perfect sense. He's their leader, they're his followers. But there may be more to this than he's just saying, hey guys, this is what we're going to do. Because in some of your translations, it's translated this way. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, implying that there's a distance, that he's out in front of them. How far, we don't know. 25 feet, 50 feet, 100 yards, we don't know. But he's out in front of them. And if that's the case, which I think it is, you think, why would he not be with the, the disciples? I mean, he's ahead of them. And, and you can say, well... They just can't keep up. I mean, he is the son of God after all. Don't race Jesus. That's probably not the reason. Maybe you'd think, well, because while he loves these guys and he'll give his life for them, sometimes you just kind of need a break. I mean, if you're a parent, you know that. You'd die for your children. But sometimes you're like, just leave me alone for a minute. Let me go to the bathroom on my own. Okay, you know, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe Jesus is saying, I love these guys. I just need a break. Okay, possibly. I think the reason he's walking out ahead of them, it's a, it's a, a point of focus. Because he knows what he's getting ready to face. He knows what this week holds. He knows what he's going to go through. He knows what his disciples are going to go through. He knows what his mom is going to go through. And with the reality of this coming week, maybe the last thing he wants is frivolous talk about sports and weather with the guys. He doesn't want to joke around with them. And if he talks at all about what's waiting for them in Jerusalem, he doesn't want to hear them trying to, to dissuade him from going forward with this. Luke kind of gives us a hint that maybe this is the case. In Luke chapter 9, it says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Resolutely. Like this, this steely decision. I'm going to do this. Again, in some of your translations, it says this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Hold on to that thought because uh, I think it ties in with something from written 700 years before. He set his face. As he's going up to Jerusalem, this is a trip that he's done dozens of times. A good Jewish boy and a good Jewish family, they made that, that journey, that pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year, multiple times every year. And maybe as he's going up to Jerusalem that day, he's thinking, this is my very last time that I'll be making this trip. I've done this my whole life. And maybe he's reflecting back on his childhood when he would, he would go on that trip with his, with his parents, with Mary and Joseph. Maybe he's thinking about that time when he was 12 and he did this trip and then everybody went home and he stayed in the temple there for, for three days and then they all came back worried. And, and maybe he's thinking about his earliest childhood memories of this, that, that the family were singing these songs, the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 to 133, 134. It's believed that these were psalms that people would sing on their way up, ascending up to Jerusalem, preparing their hearts, preparing their minds to go to the temple. Maybe he remembers when, when he first learned these psalms of ascent. 
and how he sang them. Maybe he's thinking about the times that he and his disciples had made this journey together. Or maybe, maybe he's thinking through the songs of the servant. Not as familiar with that, but in the book of Isaiah that was written 700 years before this, there are these four songs, these, these poems, these little sections of prose about the servant of Yahweh. One of them many of us are very familiar with, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. A lot of us are familiar with that, but there's three other ones. And, and maybe he's thinking through these because he is the fulfillment of these songs of the servant of Yahweh. And maybe, just maybe, he's quoting these just to remind himself of why he came. Isaiah 50, it says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, and here's that line, therefore have I set my face like flint and I know I will not be put to shame. You see Jesus' unwavering determination. I'm going to do this. This is what I'm going to do. I'm, I've been called for this. I've come for this. This is my purpose. This is God's will. And I don't care. This, this, this fortitude set my face like flint. I'm not looking on either side. I'm going forward. None go with me. You know, no turning back. I don't care how painful this is. I don't care how difficult this is. I don't care how lonely this is. I'm going to do this because this is what God has called me to. In Luke chapter 6, John chapter 6, he said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is what I came for. And this whole idea is something we see throughout his ministry when his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. What did he say? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And just four days later, he'll be in the garden and he will pray, not my will, but your will be done. Father, I am being obedient to you. I'm gonna fulfill the purpose that I came for. And so he goes for it. He sets his face like flint with determination, with resolute um, decisiveness. I'm going to Jerusalem to face what I must face. All right, so back to the story. So they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. So you've got the 12, and then you've got some others. Maybe their family, maybe their friends, some of the other followers. But they're astonished, and some are afraid. Why? Jesus had told them what was going to happen, but it seems like they don't understand that. Maybe it's just this awareness that, that there's a real possibility for some conflict. Because Jesus is always clashing with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And it's, to this point, it's always been kind of in their territory. Now they're going into the Pharisees' territory. They're going into Jerusalem. And there's a chance that there's, there's some danger, not only for Jesus, but for them as well. And so there's some fear, and there's an amazement. Why are we doing this? I can't believe we're doing this. And Jesus calls his 12, again, for a, a little bit of a, a conference. This is something he does frequently. Again... Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. Well, it says again, because this is the third time in three chapters, if you're reading the Bible here in Mark, this is the third time he's going to explain this. He said this in chapter 8, and it says he spoke plainly about this. It wasn't crypt encrypted. It, it wasn't like mysterious. He just says, here's what's going to happen. Again in chapter 9, he says, here's what's going to happen. 
And now again in chapter 10, here's what's gonna happen. What's interesting is each time he tells them what's gonna happen to him, he gives them a little more detail. And now when he gets to chapter 10, he not only gives them what's gonna happen to him, where it's gonna happen, who's gonna do this, and what is gonna specifically gonna happen to him. One other little interesting detail, and you may have picked up on this if you've been studying Mark with us, is that whenever he talks about what's gonna happen to him, he always talks in the third person. Which as I was reading, I'm thinking, why does he do that? Um, why, why, is he, why is he talking in the third person, the son of man willing, this third person deal? And, uh, and really all the commentaries that I looked into, I couldn't find any, any explanation for that. And so I began to just think, okay, what, what could that be? And, and this is all speculation on my part. Maybe there's a part of him that's still keeping it a little bit shrouded in mystery because for a long time he wasn't really revealing who he was. And maybe there's a piece of that. Maybe it's because if he keeps it in the third person, it's almost like it's this someone else and maybe the disciples couldn't handle it if he would say, here's what's gonna happen to me. So if they can hear it as the son of man, maybe they, there's a, almost a little bit of detachment and it's a little more palatable to them. Or maybe if he said, listen, here's what's gonna happen to me, they would, like Peter a few uh, weeks ago we talked about, would try to rebuke him, try to talk him out of it. Regardless, he tells them for the third time what's gonna happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, real straightforward. Here we go, we're all on the way. And the son of man, this is where he goes into the third person, the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now they don't have any compartment to put this in. They don't have handles for this. And this whole three days later, he will rise. It's like they don't even hear that. Because on Resurrection Sunday, actually uh, when he's crucified on Good Friday, they're like, it's over, it's done. When he comes back from the dead, they're as surprised as everybody else. Never saw that coming. Jesus said, I only told you a bunch of times. They never saw it. This is the third time he has said to them, on the third day he will rise. And for Peter, James, and John, it's the fourth time that he said that to them. Two weeks ago when Pastor Brian was uh, preaching on the Mount of Transfiguration, you're, you may remember if you were here, Jesus is there, Moses and Elijah are there, Peter, James, and John are there. In Mark chapter nine, it says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. He's saying it very plainly here. And they kept matters to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. What does that mean? Maybe John says, well, I think it's kind of metaphorical. Like this kingdom is gonna come to life, okay? James says, well, maybe it's one of those parable things he tells us and, and we gotta kind of figure this out. And maybe Peter says, well, I looked in the original Greek and rising from the dead means rising from the dead. <laughs> they don't even get it. They're even talking about it and they don't get it. Part of the reason is the whole concept of the Son of Man, this Messiah, dying, don't go together. They didn't see it that way. All the prophecies about this Messiah, he would bring, bring liberation and freedom and this kingdom. He's not going to die. They didn't have handles for that. They, they couldn't conceive of that. They don't understand that he's going to die, even though Jesus tells them this. 
They don't get it. Now, let's push pause on our story there for a minute. A little bit of a quiz. James and John, um, part of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, they're brothers. You may remember that. They're brothers. And their dad is a man named Zebedee. And their mom is uh, Salome. And Jesus gives these two brothers a nickname. Here's the quiz. What was the nickname Jesus gave them? Sons of Thunder. Why he gave them that nickname, we have no idea. Maybe because Thundercats would come later and he didn't want to steal that one. They're Sons of Thunder, and I think Sons of Thunder has nothing to do with Zebedee. It has to do with them. What is it about these guys? Is there some character trait? Is there a boldness about them? Is there, is there a hunger? What is it, this thunder, Sons of Thunder? For whatever reason, they've been given this nickname, and I think it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek with a little bit of a jab and a, and a description of who they are, these Sons of Thunder. But what we find is that in this setting, for whatever reason, the Sons of Thunder have a very, very poor sense of timing. They're completely oblivious to the condition around them. Jesus, I would think, is visibly heavy, a furrowed brow, maybe a bent over his shoulders and, and head as he's thinking about what awaits him. He pulls his disciples ahead, aside, and he talks about the Son of Man being flogged and beaten and spit on and killed. Very, very heavy time for him. His last trip to Jerusalem, he's walking in front of them. And in the midst of that, as he's walking ahead of them, James and John, they scurry up and come up right next to me. Now you can just imagine one on each side, and they come and say, hey, hey, hey Jesus, um, I, I know. Can we talk to you for just a minute? The timing of this is horrible if you see Jesus with this heavy, heavy heart. So, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Does that seem just a little presumptuous, a little brazen, a little bold, a little like, not now, guys? Can we be honest? We probably don't use these words, but is there anyone here honest enough to say that, hey, if I'm being truthful, sometimes my prayer time is this very same thing? Yeah. Okay, four of us. The rest of you, we'll pray for you liars. <laughs> we go into this prayer time. Jesus, I want you to do my kingdom come. My will be done. Here's my agenda. Here's my priorities. Here's what I want. Here's my success. I need you to work on my behalf. We do the same thing. We might not be this brazen about it. And Jesus could have slammed them and said, seriously, guys, seriously, do you not see the weight that I'm carrying? Do you not understand what I just told you? But Jesus is so gracious, so gracious. Huh? What do you want me to do for you, he asks. You know what I love about this? Is it shows me that I can come to Jesus with anything and everything. He says, talk to me. I may not answer it the way you want to, but talk to me. Bring it to me. I'm good with that. I mean, I think if I was Jesus at that point, I'd look at these two brothers and say, you self-centered, overindulged, entitled, spoiled ingrates, God bless you. <laughs> he says, what, what do you want? And they tell him. 
They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in your glory. And I think that they have intentionally come up and walked on both sides of it. Like this, Jesus. <laughs> let one of us be on your right and one on your left in your glory. In their mind... They have seen what the glory of a kingdom looks like. As a child, they probably remember Herod the Great and his, his glorious kingdom and those who were in his inner circle. And even now, after he's died, the, the smaller kingdoms of his sons and his grandson of, of, of Herod and Antipas and Herod Philip and Herod Agrippa and their little kingdoms and their little entourage, or maybe in, in the Roman with, with Pontius Pilate or, or had even heard about Caesar, Tiberius, and, and they'd seen these kingdoms. And, and maybe they're thinking, if he is the son of God, the son of man, if he is the Messiah, if he does usher in the kingdom, this might be the time. It might be this week. And things are going to get a little crazy. And when things get all crazy, it, it, it might get in, in all this commotion. We just kind of want to talk to you now beforehand, secure our spots so that's all dealt with. And they had been on the Mount of Transfiguration. They had observed what only Peter had observed with them. They left Peter behind on this one, you notice. They had seen Jesus in this blazing glory, white, whiter than anyone could ever bleach anything, and Moses and Elijah. They had seen this, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. They had seen that. And now they're thinking, well, that was Elijah and Moses. They're not coming back. And maybe they're saying, Here, here's what, we, here's what we, we picture. Work with us, Jesus. You come into your kingdom, and there you are. You are the Messiah. Jesus, James, and John. It has a ring to it. The three J's. One of us will be your prime minister. One of us the chief of staff. In your glory. The interesting thing is that the most glorious moment for Jesus, when he reveals the most glorious holiness, righteousness, and justice of the loving Heavenly Father, that moment when he reveals the deepest love and grace and mercy and forgiveness of a holy, righteous, just God, that moment of glory, Jesus' greatest glory was the cross. And there would be someone on his right and someone on his left. But it wouldn't be James and John. It would be two thieves. And it wouldn't be on thrones. It would be on crosses. And Jesus is probably thinking, you really don't want to be on my right and left in my glorious moment. In fact, he tells them, you don't know what you're asking. Can he... Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? If you'll give me, a, um, afford me the, the opportunity, I want us to talk about this for a minute because I think there's a lot more depth here than we see on the surface. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And probably they hear that and they think cup, I mean for me, I'm thinking Psalm 23, anoint my head with oil, prepare a table before me. My cup overflows, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Who wouldn't want that? And yeah, bring it on, fill my cup. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench the thirst of me, fill my cup. That's not the cup he's talking about. In fact, in scripture, in their scriptures, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, this picture of a cup 
was the cup of wrath. It was the cup of the wrath of God against sin. It was the wrath of God in judgment against sin. It was the wrath of God punishing sin. That was the cup in the Old Testament, was this wrath of God. In fact, in Isaiah, we read, Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. What he's saying is, come on, repent, look at what you're doing. You are drinking judgment upon yourself. The way you're living your life, you're trying to find value, you're trying to find pleasure, you're trying to find worth in this sinful life, and every time you do, you're drinking the wrath and the judgment of God. If you're going away from his will, if you're going away from his word, if you're going away from his way, you're drinking his wrath and his judgment on you. It'd be like saying, man, why would you ever try to quench your thirst by drinking antifreeze? You're killing yourself. And he says, and you just keep doing it. You drink it and drink it and drink it, you're sinning. And it's the wrath of God you're bringing on yourself by your choices and your actions. Now some of you are saying, that's why I don't like the Old Testament. Wrath-filled God and sin and all that. Can I tell you, that the Old Testament is filled with the grace and the love and the patience and the mercy of God. Because in this same passage, verse 22, this is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. That's a prophecy of what Jesus would do 700 years later. You've brought all the wrath and the guilt and the judgment and condemnation on yourself, but Jesus says, my cup overflows not with goodness and mercy. My cup overflows with the judgment and the punishment for the sins of the world. And I drink that cup so that your cup could be filled with goodness and mercy. And you can follow all the days of your life in the house of the Lord. It's an amazing thing. And four days later, he would sit around a table with his, these very disciples. And he would hold up a cup. And he would say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It will cost my life. And just a couple of hours after that, reference this already, going a little further in the Garden of Gethsemane, he fell to the ground and prayed, if it's possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Three times in the garden, as he's sweating drops of blood, he prays, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. Take this cup from me, but not my will. Your will be done. James and John, can you drink that cup? And the reality is, even if they wanted to, the only one who could drink that cup is the sinless one. They don't have the capacity to drink that cup because they have already drunk the wrath and the judgment and the punishment on themselves. Only one who was sinless could drink that cup. And he says, or... or are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized? 
Now keep in mind, this is James and John he's talking to. John, for sure, before he was a disciple of Jesus, was a disciple of John the baptizer. So he's very familiar with baptism. You can't hang out with John the baptizer without being aware of baptism. He had seen a lot of them. In fact, he had been there when Jesus was baptized. And what an incredible, glorious day that was. Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends like a, like a dove, and the voice of the Father from heaven says, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. It was an amazing time. And John's probably saying, yeah, I was there for your baptism. I was with John the Baptist. Baptism, I, I'm all about it. If you need to dunk me again, dunk me again. I'm good with baptism. But that's not the baptism Jesus is talking about. It's the baptism of sorrow. That what Jesus is preparing to go through would plunge him beneath, immerse him in, submerge him in sorrow. I find it interesting that the ministry of Jesus is bookended with baptisms. And they're total polar opposites. At the beginning of his ministry, he's baptized by John the Baptist. And it's a joyous, gladly, wonderful moment with the voice of the Father saying, you are my son. That first baptism has an exclamation point. The last baptism isn't one of joy and gladness. It's of sorrow and distress. And it's not the father saying, you're my son. It's the son saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it ends with a question mark. Two baptisms, an exclamation point, a question, joy, sorrow. Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, but I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is completed. I am gonna be submerged in this sorrow, baptized yet again, but not in a wonderful, fun, joy-filled moment. I wonder if what came to mind with Jesus was that verse out, verses out of Psalm 69, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. Little side note that is so incredibly beautiful. Jesus asked James and John about the cup and about the baptism. And for Jesus, that cup and that baptism was the wrath of God and the death of his life. And Jesus tells his disciples and us as his followers, take the cup and be baptized. And the cup for us is a celebration of God's grace and the baptism is a celebration of life. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus' cup would be filled with the wrath of God and his baptism would lead to death. Our cup is filled with the grace of God and our baptism is to new life. Because he took that cup, we get this cup. Because he was baptized with that, we have life. What an amazing thing. And James and John and they're going to say, yep, we can do it. Bring it on. Jesus says, yeah, you're, you're going to face your own cup, but I'm, I'm not giving you the two and three spot. Well, Word of this leaked out. The other disciples heard about it. That's what it says. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. I think the reason they're indignant is because they're kicking themselves. Why didn't we think of that? These guys have gotten pole position. Now we're down in three, four, five, and on. 
I think they're ticked off and, I, and they've been together for three years. They're brothers, they're cousins, they're friends, they've worked together, they're a bunch of guys. They're probably fighting like brothers at this point. Squabbling over all this whole thing and putting down James and John. Another version, another uh, gospel talks about his mom, their mom being involved with it and calling him mama's boys. I mean, all this stuff is going on with these disciples. And I think Jesus interrupts him and says this. Jesus called them together and said, I think what he said was, hey, fellas, hey, guys, hey, stop. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. You know this. You see it every day. The Roman soldiers, they show their importance and they show their greatness and they show their, their uh, authority and their status by commanding and bossing us around. You see that. But you also see when the centurion comes and he bosses them around. And you see when his boss comes and bosses them around. I mean, you've seen this, how this whole thing works, rank and order and authority and importance and, 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 and who gets to say what to who, who bosses over who. I mean, you've even seen it with, with the Herod's sons and their little kingdoms as well. And then Jesus gives them these four words. You know, this is how the world operates. This is what is seen as importance and power and authority and greatness. Gives them these four words. Not so with you. Not so with you. Guys, listen, that's all you've had modeled for you your whole life. That's all you've grown up with. That's all you've seen. We think differently than the rest of the world. We act differently. We live differently. We lead differently. We love differently. Not so with you. This isn't how it works in this kingdom. And then Jesus reminds them of something that he's already told them about. In, in Mark chapter 8, when, they, when they're arguing about who's the greatest, and he says, hey, what are you guys arguing about out there? And they're like, nothing. He already told them this. He, he has to reiterate it. He says this to them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Like, guys, I know you want to be great. And you know what I think about that? Great. Great idea. It's a great thing. It's a great goal. It's a great aspiration. It'll be a great day when you're great. I want you to be greater than great. But keep in mind, this greatness that I want for you, the kingdom standard of greatness is service. It's being last. It's thinking of others. It's dying to yourself. It's putting others before you. That's greatness. True greatness is found in the kingdom that's upside down. Say that with me. True greatness is found in the kingdom that's upside down. One more time. True greatness is found in the kingdom that's upside down. And Jesus would not just teach this. He would show them in just four days when he washes all of their feet and they cannot believe it. He says, but you know this greatness in serving, it's not just doing actions. It's having the right heart, the right motive, the right attitude behind it. Because it's true, we can do acts of service, we can do selfless acts that are actually very self-serving. 
I'm not pointing at or picking on anyone, but you know what? When a politician goes out and does something that's very service-oriented with an entourage of cameras, that actually is very helpful for them. Now, I'm not picking on politicians because for some of us, we might do some acts of service, some things of selflessness because we want someone to see, we want to be thought of as this, or what a neat gal, what a great guy, what a selfless person, and it's actually very self-serving. And likewise, we can do acts of service when we have this heart and this mindset of, of like this condescending benevolence that somehow we're helping out these poor people. Oh, they're so, look at what we're doing. And it makes us feel better about ourselves. And there's a bit of a superiority above our, about ourselves in these acts of selflessness. You know, there's one verse out of Philippians that kind of combats those two things. Philippians chapter two, verse three says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't do it for the cameras. Don't do it for their reputation. Don't do it for recognition. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Don't have this superior condescending attitude. This is a human being that Jesus died for. And if you remember Matthew 25, Jesus said, as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Look at this person, it's not some poor soul. Look at this person, it's Jesus Christ. What an honor to be able to serve and help this person. And then Jesus makes a statement. And some people would say that this statement, by the way, let me push pause before I get too dramatic. There's a bit of a typo in your link. Let's just take care of it now. The word is not money. The word is many. Got it. Sorry. Now, <laughs> last night, I mean, everybody tell me, okay, got it, got it. 14 times later, got it. We okay? Now let me get dramatic. The statement that Jesus is about to say, some would say, is the key statement of the entire gospel. That what he is getting ready to say to them is not just a teaching it's not just something that he did. It's who he is and why he came. It's the summation of Jesus' identity and purpose. This is who he is. This is why he came. This isn't just some teaching. This isn't just some act that he did for his disciples. This isn't just something he's encouraging them to do. This is who he is. This is why he came. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man, the Messiah, the one who would liberate all, has come, meaning that he was preexistent, the eternal, infinite one. If there is anyone that's ever been great, it's the Son of Man who came. But he didn't come to have people serve him. He said, I came to serve. And not just things like washing feet, but giving my life in exchange for others, drinking the cup, taking the baptism, so that you could have grace and life. Anytime you say, well, yeah, but, yeah, but, you just think about the Son of Man who came. Are you greater than him? 
See, we can get into all kinds of theological discussions, and we may in two weeks when we talk about the cross and this whole thing of the ransom and who's the ransom paid to and all that stuff. But this is a statement of love. Jesus said, I came because of love so that you could have life. And what does he say in John? Greater love has no one than this than he laid down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus has done for us. And this wasn't just for his disciples. This is for each one of us. Because when we see how the world operates, authority, power, rank, position, greatness, possessions, all that, Jesus said, not so with me, not so with you. True greatness is found in the kingdom that's upside down. Become a servant. What if? What if we grabbed a hold of that? What if we understood that? What if we pursued that? What if in the power of the Holy Spirit, we were transformed into that? True greatness in our homes, in our small groups, in our church, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in this world, to take the image of Christ, to look around at the worldview, the world values, the world's perspective and say, not so with him, not so with us. True greatness is found in the kingdom that's upside down.